This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. I'm going to be reading about the birth of Jesus this morning. So, like Adam said, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So probably most of you remember some sort of favorite toy that you had as a kid, something that brought you a lot of joy to play with that you remember fond uh, memories of. For me, one of those toys, uh, actually it wasn't even my toy, it was a toy that my brother got for Christmas that I, you know, he shared with me sometimes, but it was still a, a really fun toy to play with. It was Domino Rally. Anybody remember Domino Rally? Nobody. Nobody remembers Domino Rally. Let me tell you about Domino Rally. Domino Rally is 500 dominoes. There are bridges. There are rockets that shoot off. If the whole thing, you know, goes, knocks it all down, it was a blast, except for when it wasn't, and you accidentally knocked over one of the hundreds of dominoes in the middle. Or I remember very fondly one time where you, I had the whole thing set up, and I hit the first, and the first row just kind of went crooked, and like five dominoes went, and it was just like, wah, wah. So, so much for that. Uh, if the first row of dominoes doesn't fall correctly, everything else behind it won't fall correctly either. And this is also true theologically. It's true of our theology. Uh, these are things that we call essential doctrines. I talked about this a few weeks ago. I'll define it for you again. Essential doctrines are things that you, must, you either must affirm to be a Christian or that you must never deny to be a believer in Christ. The list of essential doctrines has to be right for everything else to fall behind it. If we get the essentials wrong, we're not going to get any other theology right behind it because the essentials drive all of those other truths. The virgin birth is one of those doctrines. If we misstep on the virgin birth, we misstep on the humanity of Jesus, another essential doctrine and we have major theological issues. In fact, we have salvation-level theological issues. We have to start to question, who do you really believe in when we start messing with the humanity of Jesus and the virgin birth? Though that's what's at stake when we dive into the theology of Christmas. 
So to misstep theologically on the things that we talk about at Christmas in regards to Jesus has major implications. It has Christ implications. It has your eternity implications. It's a big deal. So this morning, I want to first unpack to you the truth of the virgin birth and just talk about that from a theological perspective. And then I want to give you four truths that you need to embrace, but you aren't able to embrace if the virgin birth didn't exist. So let's dive in first and just talk about the truth of the virgin birth, the truth of the virgin birth. Well, let's define it first. It seems pretty straightforward, but let's make sure we have our terms clear. The virgin birth is defined this way. Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and without a human father. Look back at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to jo- Joseph, before they came together... She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Jump ahead to verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what's going on here? Joseph finds Mary pregnant, and he's like, I'm just going to divorce her quietly. But then an angel comes and said, no, 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 this child is from the Holy Spirit. So she was pregnant, wasn't Joseph's, but the Holy Spirit miraculously put Jesus in the womb of Mary. So there are two direct truths that flow from the virgin birth, two direct truths. The first is Jesus had a human body. Why was it a virgin birth? Why why is that significant? Well, he had to have a human body. Jesus was born like every other human has ever been born. He was conceived supernaturally, but he was born very normally. Mary would have gotten excited the first time she felt Jesus move in the womb. She would have gotten uncomfortable as he grew inside of her. Her feet probably got swollen along the way. It wasn't like the Holy Spirit just came and was like, baby, and then two days later, Jesus. No, it it was a nine-month pregnancy, the whole process. I think we often take that for granted and just kind of dismiss all of that as we try to get ourselves into the story. But the reality is Jesus was in the womb of his mother for nine months and then was born like every one of you was born in this room. And I know that because you're in this room. Look at Luke 2, verse 6. It emphasizes this truth. And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. He was actually born like every other human has ever been born. Do you know that he actually had to grow like all of us had to grow? He didn't come out as a 33-year-old man ready to do ministry. He came out as a baby and had to grow. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 40. And the child, speaking of Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. 
Do you know that Jesus had to learn? A couple verses later, Luke 2, 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus had to learn what it looked like to be obedient in his house. He had to learn what it looked like to become a carpenter. He had to learn skills and things along the way. He got tired. He got thirsty. He got hungry. He was weak. Jesus had emotion. Look at John 13, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And speaking about Judas, he was troubled in his spirit. It hurt Jesus that Judas was going to betray him. He was fully human. He had that emotion. Jesus had a family and he probably had to do chores and he learned the craft of carpentry. He was even limited in his understanding at times. He learned, he will later say, I don't know the hour of my return. There are things that Jesus did not know while on earth. He was fully human. He went through life as a human. In fact, he was so human that the other people who grow up, grew up around him had no idea when he started ministry that he was even capable of it. Look at Matthew chapter 13. Verse 53 says this, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? They, they lived with him, interacted with him, and they're like, wait, this guy, he can, he can teach, he can do all of these things? Where, where did that come from? He was so ordinary that he didn't stick out like we often think he probably did. John, or Wayne Grudem said this about it. For the first 30 years of his life, Jesus lived a human life that was so ordinary that the people of Nazareth, who knew him best, were amazed that he could teach with authority and miracles. Jesus was fully human. But Jesus was also sinless. So the humanity we see is all sinful human. He wasn't that. He was sinless in his humanity. So, okay, I get that he, the, the, he was born, but, but why from a virgin? Why is that so significant? Because he needed to be sinless. If he was born of a father, he would have had a sin nature like all of us have. The Holy Spirit worked in such a way that Jesus was the only human ever born without a sin nature. Adam and Eve were created without a sin nature, but Jesus was the first person ever born without a sin nature. He had to be perfect to fulfill his mission on earth. So no virgin birth, no sacrifice for the sins of the world. That's a, a big problem. The virgin birth is necessary for Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. All right, so that's the theology of it. So let's talk about four truths that you need to embrace but can't if the virgin birth didn't happen. The first is this. Jesus lived so I could be like him. Jesus lived so I could be like him. 
We're going to look at a bunch of other passages that launch out of the truth of Matthew 1 and the virgin birth that we've seen. So the first passage we're going to look at is 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. It says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus is fully human, allowed him to come to earth and be a pattern for us for godly living. Without him being fully human, him walking the earth would have been, okay, God's walking the earth. How do I emulate God? It's a lot harder, but when I look at human, Jesus is human, I can say, I can be like him. I can, he's a pattern for how I can live. He understands things differently. He gets me differently. If Jesus weren't fully man, how could he be our pattern to live? If he were only God, we'd have no real hope to emulate him like 1 John calls us to. But we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We say it this way around here. A disciple is one who is saved by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit to grow into the image of Christ by beholding, abiding, and displaying him to the world. We are to grow into the image of Christ. We are to become like him. That is what a disciple does. How do we do that? Well, we do that by beholding him when we see how Jesus actually lived. If we want to actually become like Jesus, if we want to actually emulate him, we have to look at him. We have to look at the gospels and see how did Jesus interact with people? Who was he as a person? How do I reflect that better? Look at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. It emphasizes this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How do we most behold the glory of God? Where is the glory of God most clearly shown, church? In Jesus. The glory of God is most clearly shown in Jesus. So if we want to be transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, what do we have to behold? We have to look at Jesus. We become what we behold. So what you look at, what you stare at, what you take in, that is who you will become more like. Do you know that almost 10 years ago, I had never heard the phrase, Lottie Dottie Everybody. Nor had I heard the phrase funky monkey licking chicken. But now, for some reason, unbeknownst to me or any of you in this room, when I stand up to, announce, to do announcements, th- phrases like Lottie Dottie Everybody come out of my mouth. Why? Jamie Hart. That is why. 
There are few people that I have spent more time with in the last decade of my life than Jamie Hart. We see each other virtually every day in the office. We're together on weekends. We even hang out outside of work. We spend a lot of time together. And so it starts to happen that you just start to use little random phrases that those people use. They start to rub off on you. Come on, it's not just me. You guys know this. You have good friends, and all of a sudden you start saying things. You're like, I've never said that before in my life, but it kind of works. I've heard it before like a whole bunch. Sometimes good things rub off, sometimes bad. And for the record, there's a lot more good than just random dumb phrases. Still no Star Wars illustrations. He's trying really, really hard, but still none of those. But they rub off on us because we become what we behold. We take in their language and their interaction. We become like them as we spend time with them. That's what we should be doing with Jesus. Say, I, w- I want to be more like Jesus. Behold him. Because you can be. You're called to be. But you got to breathe that in. You have to look at him. You have to stare at him. You have to pursue him. That's how we become more like him. So how's that going? How much last week did you stare at the example of Jesus? How much did you breathe in Christ last week? How much are you being molded to his example? We become what we behold. We can behold a lot of things. There are a lot of things that grab our attention that we behold way more than we behold Jesus. What are the things that are pressing Jesus out, beholding Jesus out? You're beholding them more, and so you're becoming more like them. What are those things? Four truths you need to embrace but can't without the virgin birth. The first is Jesus lived so I could be like him. The second is Jesus obeyed so I could be righteous. Jesus obeyed so I could be righteous. Romans chapter 5. You can turn over there if you would like to. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. It says this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the obedient Adam who, even though he was tempted in the desert, he did not sin. Unlike Adam, who when he was tempted in the garden, he fell to sin. Where Adam failed as the representative head of all humanity, Jesus succeeded. So we have a sin nature because of a choice that Adam made. And you say, well, that's not fair. Well, you would have made the same choice in the garden, so it's fine. But the awesome beauty of that is that because Adam is our representative head in sin, Jesus gets to be our representative head in righteousness. This is the beauty of the humanity of Jesus. If Jesus were not fully human, he could not have been our representation of obedience. Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived out the law perfectly so that we would not have to because we, in fact, cannot. 
The humanity of Jesus not only allowed him to reset us back to zero or neutral, but it allowed him to credit righteousness to our account. Do you know that if Jesus had not come and lived a perfect life, when he, a death of, without the perfect life would have just reset us to zero and said, okay, now on, go obey the law. But because he came and lived life fully as a human, perfectly as a human, he can now credit that righteousness to our accounts. This is the theology that's at stake at Christmas, church. We're not only just made free from sin at one point in history, in one point in time, and then required to live righteously from that moment. No, we're declared right in the eyes of God from the time of our justification. We are given right standing before the purest, most holy judge to have ever existed because of the right, the perfect obedience of Jesus. And that's not possible if he wasn't fully human and if he wasn't born of a virgin to be able to walk in sinless perfection. So you've probably heard about this story a little bit. Sam uh, Bankman-Fried, the founder and former chief executive of the now fallen FTX, uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, to make a long story short, if you haven't, billions of dollars came up missing from this company. It appears pretty likely that it's because of wrongdoing, because of uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, and he's now bankrupt and probably headed to jail because of it. No one's bailed him out. He's there or will be there because of choices he has made. But what if? What if Elon Musk swooped in and stepped in and paid all of the debt of billions of dollars back? That would be like if Jesus came and didn't live a perfect life. He just he paid it, reset him to zero. Don't send him to jail, we'll just reset it to zero. But if Elon Musk didn't stop there, and he put his entire fortune into the bank account of Sam Bankman-Fried and said, you have full access even though you've not earned a dollar of this. And he credited him with all of that money. That's a lot closer to what it looks like for Jesus to come and live a perfect life. And then credit that righteousness to our account. This gives us just a shadow of a glimpse of what Jesus did for those that he has called. And it's just a couple of chapters later in Romans that Paul is going to emphasize this. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul can't speak those words emphatically if it weren't for the perfect obedience of Jesus credited to our account. Now we can say, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I can look you in the eye this morning and say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for you, if you are in Christ Jesus. This is a direct application from Jesus being fully human So how do we live? Do we live like we have the righteousness of Christ? Or do we live like I, we still need to earn our own righteousness? You're like, well, I, I don't know. I, how, how would I know? Well, here, here's a couple things, and there are a lot of ways, but here's just a couple things. The first, do you declare the works of yourself more than you declare the works of the Lord? 
You're like, hey, I want everybody to see what I've done because I'm amazing and I want that to be proclaimed from the mountaintops. That's probably an indication that you're living for your own righteousness. You want people to see you as righteous, not because of what Jesus did, but because of what you're doing. Or how about this? I spend more time seeking the approval of others than living in the approval I have from God. I want people to see me in a certain way. I want them to see me as righteous. I want them to see me as good. And so I'm going to live in a way that puts my life on display so others can see how awesome I am. We should be saying, I am the way I am because of the grace of God and him and him alone. Or how about this? I spend more time focused on my failure than on Jesus' perfect obedience for me. Yeah, our sin should grieve us. It should. But what that grief should lead to is us running to the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we sit and we wallow in our failure, we actually lessen the sacrifice of Jesus for us because we're like, I'm not sure it can cover this specific thing. I need to sit and self-atone for it a little bit. Our failures should press us to Jesus, not to ourself. All right, four truths you need to claim that you can't without the virgin birth. The first, Jesus lived so I could be like him. Second, Jesus obeyed so I could be righteous. And the third, Jesus learned so he could sympathize. Jesus learned so he could sympathize. I think often when we think about God, we think about God as very other. What I mean is he is transcendent, he is holy, he is high, and he is mighty, and he is. He is very other. So much so that we'll never grasp how other he really is. But the beauty of the incarnation, the beauty of the virgin birth allowing Jesus to be fully human is he's not just other. He's personal, and he's near. He's personal and he's near because he walked the very earth that we're walking right now. He took on flesh and he understands what it's like to be human. He endured the loss of friends. He suffered fierce betrayal from people that he loved. He knows the feeling of being completely and utterly exhausted. He was tempted in a desert for 40 days without food. Sometimes after 40 minutes I feel exhausted without eating. He went 40 days. He knows hunger and thirst and pain and loss. Turn to Hebrews 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Flip flip your Bibles there. I want you to see this in the text. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this. Actually, let's start in 14. Get a running start. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The word weakness here basically means our limitations, our our sense of inadequacy. Jesus gets that. Moms, he gets the feeling 
of how can I possibly juggle one more thing? I'm tired. I'm weary. There's so much on my plate. I don't know how I'm going to endure through this season. He gets the feeling, men, of constantly feeling poured out and constantly feeling the pressure of being everything to everyone, of needing to give 100% to your job and your wife and your kids in every area of your life and feeling like there's no time for rest. He gets the feelings of being rejected by the people who are closest to him that many of you will experience in these coming weeks of being with family in the holidays. He gets it. And not only does he get it, he can sympathize. George Kittle defines sympathize this way, a fellow feeling that derives from full acquaintance with the seriousness of the situation. Full acquaintance. Jesus was tempted to doubt. He was tempted to give up. He was tempted to not put his trust in the Father. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see this in the desert. And he would have felt those things, not just in these major events, but in the day-to-day. He was tempted as we are tempted, the text says. But flip one page back. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you know that temptation wasn't easy for Jesus? I think often we think about Jesus, well, like, well, yeah, I mean, he's fully God too. Like, it wasn't that hard to walk through the temptation. No, he suffered in temptation. It was a struggle. It was hard for him because he was fully human. He was there. He understands. And what is our response supposed to be? Look back at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Church, you don't have a God that doesn't understand. There are lots of seasons where we walk through and we're like, does anybody know what I'm walking through? The answer is yes. You have a high priest who can sympathize with your weakness. You don't have a savior who can't relate to you, who is so other. He became human. He put on humanity so that he could display, so that he could learn how to sympathize with you in your weakness. That is the Jesus that is our savior. So run to him. Too often we let guilt and shame and our need to fix ourselves keep us from coming to Jesus. But guess what, church? Jesus understands. He understands the temptations you face. Run to him. Don't hide. Don't wallow in guilt. Run to him. He has full acquaintance with where you are. You're like, well, he didn't walk exactly how I walked. Yes, but the text says he can sympathize with our weakness. He has full acquaintance with where you are. He learned that by becoming fully human. He learned so he could sympathize. the third truth. All right, the fourth truth that we need to embrace but can't without the virgin birth is this, Jesus sacrificed so I could be saved. 
Jesus sacrificed so I could be saved. Go back to Matthew chapter 1. All of these truths flow out of the virgin birth that we read in Matthew chapter 1. Without the virgin birth, these things can't be true. But in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we get the, uh, the fourth truth just explicitly stated in verse 21. It says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to pay for the sins of his people. And it had to happen in this way. Back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. He had to become like us to be an acceptable sacrifice for us. He, propitiation means he took on the wrath of the Father for our sin. He took it all on himself. Wayne Grudem says this, If Christ was not fully man, he could not have died to pay the penalty for man's sin. He could not have been a substitute sacrifice for sins. He stood in the place that we should have stood. He was the substitution for you. It's what we call theologically the substitutionary atonement. Big words, really substitutionary. He took our place and atonement to pay the penalty for our sin. He gave his life so you could live forever. He stood in your place. We should have been the one paying for our sin, but Jesus took it on himself. It reminds me of the story of Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember this story where uh, God tells Abraham, go up on the mountain and I want you to sacrifice your one and only son. And this is what happens. Look at Genesis chapter 22. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. The ram was a substitute for Abraham actually offering Isaac to the Lord. Jesus is the substitute sacrifice for us, like the ram was for Isaac. But God didn't step in with a ram. He didn't step in with some animal. No, he stepped in by sending his one and only son. But the substitutionary atonement of Jesus could not have happened if he were not fully human, born of a virgin. Till he appeared, till Jesus appeared on earth as a human, there could be no payment for sin. No eternity with God. No future promise or hope. Because even the Old Testament sacrifices, they were pointing forward to something greater. They were pointing forward to Jesus. And so if Jesus never came, we lose the power of even those sacrifices. So 
So I'd be remiss to not ask you this morning, who are you trusting for your future hope, really? Is it Jesus? Have you put your hope in the fact that he's a substitute for you, that you see yourself as a sinner in desperate need of a savior and know that Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life for you, and then was crucified and murdered brutally on a cross, but then rose victorious over the grave, defeating the power of sin and death, and now is ascended and reigning with the Father in heaven? Have you put your hope in that truth? I know a lot of us have done something with Jesus. Is it that? Do you look at him and say, he has paid the penalty for my sinfulness by substituting himself for me? Some of you are like, yes, amen, 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 I have. So my question to you is, are you resting in that? Or are you defaulting to putting your hope in yourself or your performance or other people and their performance It's easy to get misaligned on where our true hope really is, isn't it? The humanity of Jesus is a huge truth to embrace. It's something that we need to behold and take in all the time. This isn't just a Christmas truth. We mostly preach on it for four Sundays uh, in December, but the reality is it has massive implications for you tomorrow and in January and in March and in June and in September. The birth of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, living a perfect life as a human, impacts your every day. It is a a 365-day-a-year truth. It's not just a Christmas thing. And God becoming man should drive us to gratefulness and thankfulness for Jesus who loves us and pleads for us and understands us. Those things aren't true without the truth of Christmas. We need to take in Jesus. We need to behold him more. So let's pray and ask him to do that in our hearts. It's easy to stand up here and to preach words and say, yes, we need to look at Jesus more. We need to look at Jesus more. We need to look at Jesus more. And then we walk out of this room and we behold all the other things. So God, I pray. I pray for the hearts. I pray for the minds. I pray for the endurance to be in faithful pursuit of Jesus Christ. If we want to look more like him, we've got to behold him. And if we want to rest more fully in him, we have to behold him. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy, and yet we chase joy in so many other things. Forgive us for that, but help us see the true joy that comes from living and resting deeply in Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for the truth of Christmas. I thank you for the truth that is represented in God becoming man for us, living a perfect life and being fully human. I pray it would impact my tomorrow. I pray it would impact our tomorrow. God, I pray that it would fuel our love for Jesus even more deeply in this season of Christmas. It's in this precious name that we pray.